Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny moderates a conversation with best-selling author Michael Pollan, Nyman Ranch's Paul Willis, and Tonka Bar's Don Sherman. They discuss how we can achieve a more balanced, resilient food system that's better for our health, communities, animals and food, and agriculture sector workers. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Danny Nirenberg, and I am co-founder of the research and awareness building uh, organization called Food Tank. It is my great honor to be part of the 22nd Nyman Ranch Port Company Hog Farmer Appreciation Celebration. And although we are all not together in person as we usually would be, this is really an exciting time for both the company and our food system. Today's panel is part of the final week of events to celebrate Nyman's independent network of independent family farms. So please visit Nyman Ranch uh, HFAD, so that's HFAD.com for more information. I, I think it's no secret that we've seen unconscionable tragedy over the last several months, but also incredible resilience, hope, and innovation and a real reckoning when it comes to racial inequality in this country. And I hope coming out of this crisis that we can reset the food system and all learn from the incredible examples set by companies like Nyman Ranch um, and, and really learn what a resilient uh, food system looks like. Before I introduce our first conversation, I wanna remind everyone to use the hashtag NRFarmer2020. Again, that's NRFarmer2020. And now I really get to introduce someone I and so many of us watching and listening have admired for a long time. Michael Pollan is, is one of those people who is impossible to introduce. He's a writer, he's an educator, and he's a voice of reason when I think uh, all of us need one. I, I would like to say that his writing, especially Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, really democratized how Americans think about food. People who weren't foodies or Aggies read it and it literally changed their lives. It changed how they thought about our food system, where our food comes from, who produces it, and how animals are treated. And it also did something really extraordinary 14 years ago, which is to expose many of the cracks in the industrial food system uh, that are now even more evident because of COVID-19. On a personal note, I remember talking to Michael for the first time on the phone in about 2005 um, because I was doing some research on factory farming and he was incredibly gracious with his time and his resources. And when he signed my book, Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, uh, at the DuPont Circle Farmers Market in Washington, DC, where I volunteered, he actually remembered that conversation, which blew me away. So. Uh, something like that when you're a young writer and researcher is, is really sticks with you. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today and, and joining all of us. It's really an honor to have you. And uh, I have to say a highlight of my career. Oh, Danny, thank you so much. It's wonderful to have another opportunity to talk with you and to be here. I'm here because of Paul Willis, uh, you know, who I have known since I was reporting on Omnivore's Dilemma. I remember spending some really transformative uh, time with him uh, at his farm. And Paul has uh, patiently invited me to every farmer appreciation <laughs> dinner, I think, for the last 22 years, or almost that. And I've never been able to make it to Des Moines. Um, 
And the advantage of doing it virtually is not having to fly to Des Moines. Uh, the disadvantage, of course, is there's no food involved, uh, which is, seems a shame for a, for a food event. Uh, but at least we can talk about it. So anyway, it's wonderful to be here with, uh, with all of you today. Thanks so much. So I, I want to dig right in and start talking about how Omnivore's Dilemma traced how America and now much of the world eats. You, you talked about meat from feedlots and meals from fast food restaurants. And then on the flip side, really the growth of organic and the sustainable agriculture movement. It was kind of this behind the scenes view of, of our meals, both the good and the bad. And, and that leads me to my first question. In, in so many ways, Michael, I think you were looking into your crystal ball, not only telling us what the food and agriculture world kind of looked like in the mid-aughts, but also what could happen if we, we didn't pay attention or we ignored the food system. You talked about antibiotic misuse and overuse, the conditions of animals in factory farms, as well as the wonders and the benefits of grass-fed meat. So I'm wondering uh -huh. if you were writing a sequel or another chapter uh, to Omnivore's Dilemma, what would you include? What was missing in, in 2005, 2006, when you were writing that you would include today? Well, you know, I, I think that a lot of the trends that I talked about, both positive and negative, have been accentuated since then. Right. Uh, the book came out in 2006. And since then, things with the food system have gotten a lot worse and a lot better. Um, and uh, so it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, I think that if I were writing it again, I would pay more attention to concentration in agriculture. I think that that has gotten much worse with enormous implications for farmers and ranchers, um, that we have seen the absolute failure of antitrust policy, um, mm -hmm. uh, which you know the Obama administration briefly threatened to do something about, but quickly backed off uh, under pressure. Um, so I, I would look at that. I would look at uh, processed food, um, which I think has gotten um, more processed in the time being. We have products I couldn't have imagined then. I think uh, Pizza Hut, I think, just introduced a, a, a pizza that comes with cheeseburgers or tacos on it. So I think the absurdities of processed food have gotten worse. Sure. Um, I think there has been a lot of work to internationalize uh, what is worst about the American food system as fast food comes to Africa. So I think I might have paid a little more attention to the international situation if I were writing it again. On the other side, though, I think we've seen the growth of an alternative food economy that is much bigger now than anyone could have imagined. Um, I'm talking not only about the burgeoning of local food, um, farm to table, all of which has gotten much, much bigger. Um, uh, but also, um, you know, a bunch of innovative companies uh, mm -hmm. who pay attention to where their food comes from, uh, source very carefully. Uh, and, and, and we've seen a lot of innovation on the farms. Um, I had to look hard for a Joel Salatin, you know, back then as someone who had come up with new ways of raising animals in rotation on grass. And, and now there, you know, there are hundreds of, of innovative farms right now. And that's all very uh, encouraging. Um, so, uh, so it's the best of times and the worst of times. Sure. Um, but a central message of that book is 
this word we use rather carelessly, unsustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and I was making the point that the giant monocultures, whether of corn and soy or of animals on feedlots, were unsustainable. That had a very specific meaning. It just didn't mean that we didn't like it, that we had some kind of moral or aesthetic objection, but that by its nature, it, had, it was going to break down at some point, yeah. uh, that there was something fundamentally uh, wrong in the structure that was not going to last. And I think we've seen uh, signs of that, uh, especially in the last year. I think the pandemic has exposed what is unsustainable in the system. Uh, and we can talk more about that, but, but we've had this incredible uh, window open on the food system, on you know, who is actually um, cutting the meat and picking the crops and, 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 and how dependent we are on these invisible workers who we right. now call essential workers. Right. Uh, they've always been essential. We just didn't know it until the system started to buckle last spring. So um, I think we're having a reckoning, actually, uh, and that a lot of the, um, uh, the critique that was spelled out, and not just by me, but by a whole generation. Of, I'm thinking of Eric Schlosser and, you know, right. um, Marion Nessel and, and that whole generation of, of food writers who had a kind of a political take on food. Um, I think we're, we're seeing some of those um, uh, chickens come home to roost. Absolutely. You mentioned concentration and how it's worse for both farmers and ranchers, but that concentration has also been really detrimental to food and farm workers. And I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on that. Yeah, well, you know, as the industry uh, has gotten um, concentrated in fewer hands, um, the, the, you know, one of the the problems with that is that the, uh, the, the workforce, uh, as well as the ranchers, uh, the people growing the food, but the workforce has been treated more and more badly. I mean, you know, there are 56, I just read 57,000 food system workers have tested positive for COVID. Right. Um, we do not, uh, the CDC has issued safety guidelines for both meat plants and farms, but the Labor Department under President Trump has declined to make them mandatory. Um, you have states like Ohio that have rules governing, you know, how nail salons can work safely. Right. And, um, uh, even uh, rifle ranges, you know, they've got granular rules, nothing about agriculture. Right. Um, so we're just kind of pretending that the people, that the hands that feed us um, are out of view. Half of them are undocumented and we're not paying attention to their health. And, and the great lesson of the pandemic is that we're all in this together. That right. the reason you want something like universal health care is that the health of your neighbor now affects you in a very direct way. And if your neighbor isn't covered by health insurance uh, or has, you know, substandard health insurance, that has a direct effect on you because of exposure to uh, the coronavirus. Um, so we're seeing, uh, you know, a very dangerous situation, both in the, in the farm fields now uh, and in the meatpacking plants, where, of course, workers are also being forced to work, even right. in unsafe conditions. Partly because the president 
invoked the Defense Production Act, declaring meat a critical part of the national defense in order to force workers back on the line. Uh, right. This at the behest of uh, John Tyson uh, last spring, who, who threatened, you know, meat shortages. Sure. Um, so there's, a, there's an incredible um, injustice being done in our names. Uh, and that to be part of this industrial food system is, you know, people should know that that's the system that, that they're connected to and complicit in. Um, so uh, I, I think that, um, but it's, it's this learning moment. We're seeing this in a way we yeah. haven't seen it. Um, and this journalism, you know, there's some very good journalism being done. There's a fantastic piece in Politico today about what's going on with farm workers. I urge everybody to read. I just tweeted it. Um, and in fact, we're doing right now, we're preparing a sequel to Food Inc., uh, the, the 2010 movie on the system, because enough has changed to justify a sequel, I think. Right. And just like Omnivore's Dilemma, I think Food Inc. changed so many people's perspective on, on food. People, again, who weren't, you know, that interested in where their food came from before. It was an aha moment for so many people. And, and I, I loved what you had to say about, you know, sort of the, the internationalization of, of what we're seeing with factory farms and concentration in agriculture. And, and you know, it's factory farms are not only in Asia, which where they've been very prevalent for a long time, but also you mentioned uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And there are some real dangers there without, you know, the, certainly not a lot of worker protection, certainly not a lot of regulation. So really paying attention to how we're spreading this bad example of farming to other countries is, is important to watch. Yeah, it's a bad, it's a bad kind of farming. And it's also a bad kind of eating. And, uh, you right. know, you have, I think it's in Ghana where um, rates of diabetes have gone up 1500% in the last couple of years as fast food has moved in. Um, this is another aspect of, uh, and when, well, let me back up a little. When KFC and other companies come to Ghana, they, they don't just bring their chicken with them. They want to raise the chicken locally. And so yeah. they change Ghanaian agriculture and they encourage people who had been growing food to eat to start growing feed to feed chickens. Right. And so you have this move into commodity agriculture in a place where uh, food security is, is less certain than it is here. So suddenly you've got farmers growing inedible food, um, right. which is to say animal feed. And, and suddenly you have farmers whose, whose survival depends on international markets uh, which, as we know, swing wildly, um, and that those farmers could be very easily wiped out by collapses in prices. So it's a it's a it's a risky thing to be doing. Um, but I want to say one more thing on the health impacts of the way we're eating. I think another uh, uh, illumination of the pandemic has been the link between bad diets uh, right. and our health. And that, um, you know, one of the most amazing facts about the coronavirus, that the people who have died from it, uh, half of them have uh, ROBs. 30 or 40% of them have type 2 diabetes. Uh, half of them have hypertension. So that the, the earmarks of the, of the standard American diet, as it's called, uh, are closely correlated 
with your susceptibility to this disease. And I don't think Absolutely. we've talked enough about that. Um, uh, agreed. And yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we're finding that um, also inflammation, uh, full body inflammation as measured in things like C-reactive protein are very good predictors of a hospitalization for coronavirus. Right. Uh, and, and of course, inflammation is largely caused by uh, a bad diet, by a fast food diet. So here we have this diet that, you know, we've long known kills us slowly in ordinary times, uh, now killing us rather quickly. And uh, so I think we should be paying more attention to how we're eating because uh, it's such a critical part of maintaining a healthy immune system. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think this idea of food as medicine is really taking a stronger hold because bad diets and, you know, your susceptibility to COVID-19 has just increased exponentially. And even, you know, our former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Dan Glickman, this is like the fight he's taken on to really, you know, put more new more research into fruit and vegetable consumption to really get people to to start thinking about their diets in a different way. And I, I can say that, you know, those are things he probably wasn't talking about much when he was Secretary of Agriculture. And I, I like Dan, but it, it's nice to see somebody with a lot of gravitas, you know, now coming around to these issues. Yeah, well, you know, there's this long tradition of uh, agriculture secretaries becoming much more progressive when they no longer have any power. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but that seems sure. to be the rule. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I want to get into this idea of resilience. Everybody I know, everybody is talking about, we need a more resilient food system post COVID. We really need to transform into this more resilient food system. And I, I fear that this idea of resilience is becoming more like, uh, you know, what's sustainable you know, used to mean, you know, it, it means different things to different people. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what does a resilient food system look like? Well, I agree. I mean, resilient and uh, sustainable and now regenerative are all words that risk being corrupted. Uh, such, you know, such things happen. Um, one of the reasons, one of the arguments for making strong federal definitions as we have for organic is that you can do something to resist that complete corruption of language, <laughs> although there, you know, there are problems with that too. Um, but resilient means able to withstand shocks. Uh, that's how I interpret it. And there is a trade-off between a system that is highly efficient, like our food system, uh, right. when it's working as it's supposed to. We have consecrating it to the god of efficiency. How can we produce more corn, more pigs, more everything with a minimum sure. amount of feed, a minimum amount of time, a minimum amount of human labor? That's how we judge. It's, it, it's the capitalist definition of efficiency. It's, it's a factory idea um, to get as much from your inputs as possible. Uh, and it doesn't take account of a lot of things, but it sure gives you a lot of cheap food. Um, the problem is, though, to make a system efficient, and even mergers are, are supported by the government in the name of efficiency. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the argument for companies to get together. Um, you, it, it, you lose something at the same time. You lose the kind of redundancy. Uh, when right. you have four companies slaughtering 85% of the, the beef in this country, um, 
when you have a single plant, as we saw, I forget it was where it was in Sioux Falls or Iowa City, that um, was slaughtering 5% of the pork in the country so that when they closed down, there were shortages in the supply line and the farmers contracted to that plant were actually euthanizing, to use a, a horrible um, uh, euphemism, uh, sure. their animals. You see that um, the, the risks of, of this worship of efficiency, which is you lose the redundancy of having thousands of meat plants so right. that a collapse in any one of them barely ripples the system. Right, so, right. So efficiency is uh, tends to give up on resilience. Um, yeah. And what we have seen in the pandemic is the importance of resilience and the limitations of efficiency. Um, you know, everybody was everybody noticed that toilet paper disappeared from the stores like instantly, and there was a shortage at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, that's the result of a highly efficient. Uh, but not resilient system. There were two two supply chains in America supplying toilet paper, controlled right. by different monopolies or oligopolies. One of them was sending single-ply toilet paper in giant rounds to institutions and schools, right. factories, offices. The other was sending smaller rolls of higher quality toilet paper to supermarkets. Suddenly, everybody was staying at home and not using toilet paper at work. But all that toilet paper could not be moved to this other marketplace right. because it was just a different product, different suppliers, different trucks, different everything. So this right. was an efficient way to sell toilet paper to Americans, but it turned out not to be resilient at all. And right. then you had these shortages. So, um, so that trade-off, I think we, we need to be really alert to. And we have to think of policies that increase resilience. Uh, and when we're when two meat companies are thinking of merging, we have to look, is that going to mean, even if it means greater efficiency, even if it means lower prices, is it going to create a precarious system that right. not withstand shocks? Because shocks are what we're going to get. I mean, Absolutely. the pandemic is, is a huge shock. Uh, there is, you know, it's a rehearsal for things like climate change, however. Um, other shocks are coming. Um, you know, other pandemics are coming. Um, we've long known that factory farms are incubating the next pandemic. And, you know, this one appears to have come from a wet market in, in China. There's no reason the next one couldn't come from a feedlot in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're petri dishes for this kind of thing. So this idea of, of building a system that withstands shocks that's not just in the hands of farmers. It's not just in, in the hands of companies. It's, it's in the hands of all of us. And I, I'm wondering, you know, you wrote this, you co-authored this um, op-ed a few years ago with Mark Bittman and Ricardo Salvador uh, about building sort of a, a national food policy. And I think, you know, that's what we're getting at here. What kinds of policies will, will make it, you know, easier for us to withstand these shocks? And, and I'm wondering why don't politicians pay attention to this? I mean, this this is a, a really difficult time in our, our turbulent political situation for sure. But how can we get politicians to start paying attention and to build those policies in place that protect workers, that protect the land, that protect farmers and farm workers? How can we get that going? 
Well, you know, one of the changes that's happened since Omnivore's Dilemma uh, is that there are the food reform movement, the movement to um, create a national food policy devoted to the values of both uh, human and environmental health, um, has support in Congress in a way it did not in 2006. Sure. Um, you have Cory Booker has, has proposed a, a, a moratorium on feedlots. Uh, he and Elizabeth Warren uh, are um, talking a lot about antitrust policy and, um, and you know, bringing this era of, of uh, concentration, which is as more intense than it was in 1920, the last time we broke up the meat sure. plants. Back then, there were four plants that slaughtered 80% of the beef, and now four plants slaughter 85% of the beef. In 1970, there were, you know, it was a much more uh, diverse landscape. Um, that worked. We broke up the trusts, and we created an environment that was a lot healthier, a lot more resilient. So you've got, and uh, you have John Tester too in, in the Senate. You've got, you, we've, we have some powerful allies now and yeah. we need to support them. We need to get some of these people on the ag committees. They tend not to be on the ag committees. Sure. Um, and to realize that food is an issue that isn't just about farmers, that it's about eaters too. Um, and we have to, you know, push it. Um, Every year, every every uh, Democratic primary, you know, the, all the people in Iowa have met more presidential candidates than any of us have and have had them on their farms and have heard them, you know, uh, get religion on, you know, carbon sequestration or animal welfare, any number of things. But Democrats seem to forget this as soon as they get into power and they, you know, they turn to, uh, you know, the Tom Vilsacks of the world for more of the same. I'm hoping, though, this time we can we can really exert some power, uh, assuming that um, we have a change in administration and make clear that the Department of Agriculture, that that appointment is critical, not just to ag policy, but to our yeah. health policy as a nation and our environment, our, our climate change policy. And that um, we, need to, we need to realize that ag policy is not this little ghetto, but it's actually right. central to public health and central to climate change. So does that mean in, in four years that you're running for office, Michael Pollan, for, <laughs> for Congress, no. for president? <laughs> when Obama was elected, there was this, this silly movement, I thought, to uh, make me ag secretary. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, anyone who thinks that that's in the realm of possibilities doesn't know the first <laughs> thing about agribusiness. <laughs> So before we turn to our amazing panelists, my, my final question for this sort of one-on-one -on -one discussion is, you know, and it, it's not a positive one, Michael, it's, it's what's your biggest fear? What, what if we go back to the way things were? I mean, I feel like we've learned so much during the pandemic about how fragile our food system is. What if we go back just to the way things were and, and we don't build those systems in that will withstand global shocks? Well, you know, I think part of resilience is having a lot of different food systems. Frankly, it's not just having one. I mean, I don't, I don't see the industrial food system going away. Um, I think the challenge is to build more alternatives to it um, so that, you know, if, if the, uh, you know, the confinement hog industry 
falls apart because of some new pathogen uh, or who knows what, some concern with the environmental effects of those horrible structures, um, there'll be still a way to get pork. Um, I mean, that's sure. kind of what Nyman exists for. It's a shadow, it's a shadow pork industry. And we need shadows at every stage. We need grass-fed beef, which by the way, barely existed as a, as a business in 2006. That was kind of right. wishful thinking more than anything. Now, now there's a lot of grass-fed beef in the market. Um, so I think we have to think in terms of pluralism. And that um, the idea is not necessarily to destroy the industrial food system. I don't, I don't think that's realistic, but also to keep it from from crushing competition to it. And that right. we need to nurture competition, nurture the farmers' markets, nurture the the small farmers, and realize that you know, I mean, the to inspect bigger. Uh, slaughterhouses rather than smaller because their their inspectors then become more efficient, right? They can look at more carcasses in an hour. That's the wrong way to think. Um, yeah. That's the kind of efficiency that courts disaster. Uh, ditto, you know, faster line speeds and things like that. So at the same time, the government needs to support small slaughterhouses and small farmers. So, um, you know, that's what I think we need to do. And if we don't, um, you know, I think we've had a preview of what happened last spring when huge amounts of food was being destroyed, uh, both vegetables and animals, because the system was breaking down. Yeah. Uh, and there were shortages in the supermarket. It felt a lot like the, you know, the late Soviet Union when you walked into a supermarket. And, Absolutely. And, you know, limits on the number of things you could buy. I mean, we had an image of, um, of what could be. And uh, I, I'm hoping that that image will stick with people as we, because our biggest problem in our food system is that we take it for granted. Uh, we take Absolutely. for granted that there will always be uh, incredible choice on the shelves, um, that we will be able to get what we want when we want it. Uh, right. And we, we saw that that isn't necessarily the case. Right. And we take for granted that it will always be inexpensive, that, you know, not just available, but inexpensive. And I think what you're, you're, you know, alluding to with this pluralism that you mentioned, we need a variety of different kinds of farming systems and, and structures in place is really just a more diverse food system. One that's, you know, more like, uh, you know, a mixed crop, you know, livestock farm, where you're seeing lots of diversity happen all the time, but having that you know, spread out in different ways. So and that's we know that, that that diversity protects you. I mean, that when there is a tornado or whatever they call that new kind of storm I'd never heard of in Iowa uh, a couple of weeks ago, that you've got, yeah. right, you've got a lot of different crops and that, you know, some will get wiped out, but some won't. I mean, there's been very good research that suggests that the more diversified a farm, the more resilient it is when there are uh, catastrophic weather events. So we, we just have to keep that in mind. You may lose some efficiency by adding to your rotation or adding animals to your corn and soy uh, rotation, but you gain something else. Um, right. And you also gain access to, uh, to the consumer. I mean, and, 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 and I think a lot of farmers, I mean, if you look at the, the parts of the system that did well in the spring, it was the smaller farmers who were able to pivot 
they had relations to consumers. They thought about eaters, not just, you know, Cargill or whomever they were selling to. And, yeah. um, and you found, you know, farmers put together CSA boxes. Uh, some dairy, dairy people who had pasteurization equipment had people coming to the farms and buying milk. So, so that's a kind of diversity too, that you don't just sell into the commodity food chain, but you also have a consumer outlet that protects the farmer um, in ways that, uh, you know, dependence on this massive efficient system never will. Absolutely. Pivot has certainly been the word of the year, whether you're a farmer or not. (laughs) I'm afraid so. I'm sorry to use it. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, There's no other way to describe it. So I I thanks so much, Michael. I think this is a really important and instructive way to to begin this discussion. I want to welcome our our other panelists uh, into the conversation. It's really my pleasure and honor to introduce Don Sherman, the CEO of Native American Natural Foods and Tonka Bar, who is a tribally enrolled member of Shawnee and Delaware tribes. And again, we have someone who, who doesn't need much of an introduction. Um, Paul Willis, the founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company and my favorite farmer of all time. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. <laughs> So, um, Michael wrote a really interesting piece in the New York Review of Books in June, and he said, you know, what we've been talking about, that there will always be a trade-off between efficiency and resilience, and he also said not to mention ethics, and that the food industry opted for the former and that we are now paying the price. But he also asked readers to really imagine you know, something other than this factory farm model. And and he talked about it before, where there are thousands of of, uh, farmers raising uh, pigs and chickens and bringing them to, you know, hundreds of regional slaughterhouses. And and Paul, this is the model that Nyman has really set up and, and put forward with your vision. You now have 750 plus probably at this point, farmers raising pigs uh, across the country, mostly in the Midwest. And now you're expanding into other products like bison, which Don can talk about in, in a few minutes. So I want to ask you, Paul, the same question I asked Michael, wh- wh- you know, what is your definition of resilience? Is it the model that you've set up with Nyman Ranch Pork? Well, I think it is. Uh, you know, back when we started this, uh, at least one of my goals was to distance ourselves as far as possible from the commodity world. You know, so we wanted uh, somebody to check animal welfare, to look at that, even a stamp of uh, some kind of certification. Eventually, no antibiotics uh, have to be raised by by farmers, uh, animal welfare standards, uh, pasture, bedded pens, these kind of things. Uh, we didn't have a name like resiliency or anything for it, but, but in fact, that's really what we were doing. And, uh, and, and then... Another part of it was to pay farmers a fair price to compensate them for for doing these extra things. And one of the things that Michael uh, uh, said that really uh, uh, rung uh, true with me was when he started talking about real food. And I thought, well, that's it. You know, we want to have, whether it's animals or vegetables or fruit or grain or whatever it is, Raised, raised with real things, not not uh, uh, chemical additives, not you know. So that 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 tied in with organic production and also 
also uh, animals are raised in the in a way that they could exhibit their natural behavior mm-hmm. and and also um, our farmers uh, don't just do uh, do this raise uh, a certain kind of livestock almost everybody are raising other things on their farms which makes the farms diversified and in each of these production systems complements each other so that's a real definition of resiliency. And, you know, I, I've been talking to a lot of the folks on your team about how Nyman's farmers have really withstood COVID-19 when so many conventional hog farmers just haven't been able to. Um, you know, they, a, a lot of them are going out of business. And you're getting sort of record interest from those conventional folks uh, to be part of, of Nyman Ranch Corp Company. And, and I'm wondering, do you think this interest will continue, you know, post-COVID when we have a vaccine and if everyone starts wearing their masks and does what they're supposed to, do you think that interest in Nyman Ranch Pork and, and farmers wanting to be involved will continue? Yes, I do. I, I think it's a trend and it's not going to stop uh, just uh, because COVID, uh, uh, and, and as Michael said, this may not be the first pandemic. There, there could be other things that will happen, but just, uh, just by the very fact that uh, we have a lot of small farms, uh, we talk about social distancing. We had farm distancing, I guess you might say. Uh, the, the number of pigs that we produce out of our network of farmers is equal to maybe a couple of factory farms that, that are all concentrated in, in one place. And I'll, I'll, uh, you know, depending on like uh, you were talking about that large uh, packing house in Sioux Falls. So uh, during this time, our farmers were assured, you know, uh, there are potential for problems, but but we assured our farmers that that we would buy their hogs and we would find we would, you know, your your pigs are ready for market. It isn't like you can keep them for a, a half a year or something like this. It's uh, anyway, th- there was a a sense of confidence that they had in, in working with uh, with us, Nyman. That's great. And, and Paul, I mean, you know, this might be sort of a controversial question. Is is the company, you know, is Nyman Ranch Pork Company able to withstand all of this interest? Are you able to meet all of that interest? You know, do you have enough capacity to really work with those farmers in a way that will get, you know, get them set up and get going by this time next year? Uh, absolutely. We, we have uh, demand. Uh, the demand has shifted, you know, from food service uh, and in all of our restaurant partners. We were, you know, uh, uh, very sympathetic to their uh, situation, trying to do everything to get them back on their feet. But people started going, as you know, going to grocery stores instead of going out to eat. I think Michael said he just went out to eat for one of the first times and I've heard other people say that, so that's that kind of that that part of our business is kind of returning, and uh, so uh, yes, the demand is there. People, I think, have uh, have had a, a heightened awareness of of what's in their food, how is it, how is our food raised, right. and so they're looking for quality and uh, and and all of those attributes that go with what we do. 
That's great. Don, I want to bring you into the conversation now because of this point about, you know, that Paul brought up about heightened awareness of how, uh, you know, food is raised and and the quality. And I, I feel like what you've been able to do with Native American natural foods and especially Tonka Bar is really help folks understand how animals are treated, how they're honored. You told me when we last spoke that, you know, the, the bison are considered your ancestors. And, and I think that's very appealing to folks right now, this idea of, of knowing where your food comes from and, and really understanding it, you know, better than before. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. And, um, so as you said, the, you know, we, we were, uh, I'm also Ogla Lakota uh, from the Pine Ridge Reservation. Sorry. No, that's fine. We're a Buffalo Nation. Uh, the, the Buffalo are our ancestors. So uh, when we speak to them, it's always an honor. Um, as you're raising them too, we're not really, uh, most of our producers um, consider themselves stewards or caretakers of the animals. We're, they're, you know, we're not actually, you know, they're, they're teaching us just as much as they're te- teaching them. Right. So um, taking care of them. And um, as, can you reword that again? Uh, can you repeat the questioning and make sure I'm hitting the right? Sure. I mean, I, the question about is really about, you know, honoring the food that you're eating. And I, you know, Paul was mentioning this idea of heightened awareness around quality of food and people really want to know the story of their food and have a greater interest in it since COVID. And I'm wondering, you know, how does that, how does that translate into what you're doing? Right. Sorry. Sorry about that. I lost track talking about. No, 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 no. Um, uh, on our side, as far as um, where we come from and then our people, you're, you're seeing a resiliency in, in food sovereignty and local food systems. Uh, this is a practice that we have always done uh, for, you know, foraging and harvesting and um, having our own food and uh, sustaining us through the winter. So Tonka Bar, you know, is a, is a value-added product of buffalo that is minimally processed uh, that brings, you know, that healthy part to to um, our people and to the community and to our consumers. So that is was a modernization of what we've practiced for thousands of years. And you're seeing that pivot in this where people really want to know where their food are, where their food is coming from. Uh, one thing also is what um, kind of what Ma- Michael said um, with the oligarchies in these uh, one crop cultures is, eating seasonally, eating, you know, that's part of the foresting harvesting is looking at seasonal. So, you know, you didn't always have broccoli available every, you know, 12 months out of the year, or you didn't, you know, all that type of stuff. So um, part of what we're doing is obviously bringing a voice to that, especially in this time in this day and age too, um, with BIPOC and minority owned businesses, uh, there is a huge movement out there to bring that knowledge back not only just to our people and to the communities, but also as a nation, people are, are pivoting sure. more gardens. You're seeing more producers also, your bison producers and your cattle producers and, you know, the, the pig, all of them trying to quickly into these smaller places of, you know, where they're sending their animals to get into the local because as the meat came off of the shelf, Native American natural foods or Tonka bar, we were in a, a position we have a, a, a shelf-stable product. Right. So we also saw, saw meat snacks and the, the jerkies fly off the shelves also because people were replacing that protein that they couldn't find on the shelves also with the grab-and-go uh, jerky sets that we saw out there. Absolutely. 
I, I want to get into this um, sort of stigmatization of, of Native communities. Often what we hear is, you know, the bad stuff, the poverty, you know, uh, on, on, on reservations, you know, just all of the bad things. And I think, you know, this sort of changes that, that story and, and, you know, showing how Native communities can be resilient, use their knowledge, both ancient knowledge and new knowledge to create something really wonderful. And, and that, you know, provides an opportunity for, you know, young people who are living on reservations who didn't see a lot of hope you know, maybe in the past. And I'm wondering, you know, how the company sort of views that, you know, creating that next generation of, of folks to become part of it. Uh, yeah. I, as far as resiliency, I, I like what Michael said, as far as able to withstand shocks. Uh, Native American people, uh, we've withstood a lot of shocks throughout history. For sure. Um, you know, as soon as colonial came through and the diets and we were put on reservations and to eat that type of food. So we were able to withstand that. Also the shock of our economy going away with, with the bison and with the buffalo. That was our, our whole economy. So uh, bringing that, again, bringing that knowledge and um, you're seeing a lot of the younger generation in Indian country um, really grabbing that and having the voice. And in this day, in this culture, we, we have a voice right now in this, his, in right now in this time of, of history. Um, you're hearing those voices. You're seeing the younger generation coming out saying, we can do this. They're passing that knowledge down from, the, from their elders, uh, creating local food systems, looking at where their local food is come, foresting and harvesting and teaching that upwards um, on, on that side. So, I mean, what we're bringing is showing them that it can be done even in a place as isolated as the Pine Ridge Reservation. Native American Natural Foods brought a value-added product out of two needs. One was to address the health of our people because of the colonial diets we were on. And two was also the need that the uh, stewards, the caretakers of the buffalo came to us and said, we need somewhere to take this instead of to your local market. Um, so that is where Tonka Bar came, was really born out Absolutely. of community out of those two needs. So sometimes the problem is the solution is what I see. There, there, there were some problems, but the solution was right there. It was within our own economy, which was the Buffalo. Um, and every culture has that, you know, they're that, you know, the problem is the solution sometimes when you're looking. So it's just pushing that forward. Absolutely. And you and Michael have spoken a lot about the health, you know, aspects of of, you know, traditional diets versus sort of this industrialized diet. And I, I know you set up a fund as part of, of Tonka to not only restore the bison to the land and, and create better, you know, uh, you know, bring better health to, to the land itself, but also bring better health to, to Native communities. And I'm wondering if you can share with folks, one, what the Tonka Fund is, and, and two, how they can donate to it. Yeah, thank you. So uh, what Native American Natural Food done is um, we actually are creating a food system. So Native uh, Tonka Bar was created. And then as we went through, we saw these individual producers. And this is where the partnership with Nyman came in and how important that was. They have a proven a successful model with multiple producers that use their supply chain. We saw the same need within our Buffalo uh, caretakers. So 
as we grew, we saw that they, these individual producers really needed some assistance in order for us to bring them into our supply chain full, fully. So we created the Tonka Fund, um, which is our nonprofit, and they take direct donations, which you can go to tonkafund.org and donate directly. And those, those donations go directly to those producers to help with their infrastructure and their technical assistance. We also have the Tonka Resilient Agriculture, which is um, part of the Tonka Fund that uh, as they uh, get up to that point, they come into and that, that's the network of producers that will um, bring in that supply chain of the bison and grass-fed cattle as we're moving forward. So we're actually creating a food system uh, similar to as Nyman Ranch has been doing. That's great when two companies who share similar goals can learn from one another and sort of share their philosophies. Um, I, I wouldn't, this is really a, a question for you all. And I, I want to go back to this idea of how, how COVID has really, uh, you know, exposed so many cracks in the food system. And, and Michael, you wrote in 2002 that maybe all we need to do to reform or redeem industrial animal agriculture in this country is to pass a law requiring that the steel and concrete walls of CAFOs and slaughterhouses be replaced with glass. And, you know, that idea of, of the right to look. And I'm wondering, you know, what you all think about that. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I've been to uh, a, a, a Nyman Ranch farm. I've also been to large industrial processing plants and slaughterhouses and farms all, all over the world. And these are very different, <laughs> you know, forms of agriculture. So I, I, I'm wondering if, you know, if, if we can you know, look through that glass, do you think that will also help people change their their eating practices? Will that change companies' practices? Paul, maybe you want to go first? Well, that was one of the uh, things that I was talking about in the beginning. I wanted, I wanted uh, an animal welfare certification uh, uh, stamp of approval, if you will, and Diane Halverson helped me, uh, and she actually was largely responsible for uh, writing the standards in the beginning. The, in the, the industry didn't want anybody to, they didn't really want that because they didn't want people to really, uh, I feel, see what they were doing. And uh, yes, if, if, if everybody knew, and a lot, a lot more people do know, uh, you know, it's going to, have an effect on what people are going to seek out when they're, when they buy products. So let me add something to that. You know, when I was sure. first reporting on food, there were two kinds of farms and two kinds of uh, slaughterhouses, the ones that would let a journalist in to visit and the ones that wouldn't. And that was a pretty clear guideline <laughs> to me. Um, right. I remember spending a lot of time with Paul on his farms and meeting his pigs and walking his land. And, uh, and then there were, you know, I wanted to go to conf hog confinement operations. And it was always explained that these, uh, that these animals were so, their immune systems were so compromised and, and they were so delicate that, you know, if I could go in, I'd have to take a chemical bath first uh, with the with the babies. And um, but in general, you know, no, I, I couldn't go. They didn't want me to see it. Um, I think that's that should tell you something. I mean, you should yeah. buy food from farmers willing to have you come visit, welcoming you, you know, as a visitor. Uh, transparency is very important, and there is a lot yeah. of secrecy in this system, and that's the reason that. 
we're so out of touch with these so-called essential workers, these people we depend on to eat. We have no idea who they are. We right. have no idea where they are. We have no idea of the, the working conditions that they labor under. Uh, and it's no accident. This is kept from us. Absolutely. Don, do you think, you know, showing what Tonka is doing and showing what Native American natural foods is doing is helping consumers learn and, and you know, make different choices? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, Paul and Michael, I, I mimic exactly what they're saying. If people were more aware, um, you know, come out to Pine Ridge Reservation. I, it's beautiful. And these bison are roaming on, you know, thousands of acres and, you know, they're giving the freedom to have their choice and eat and forage and, you know, live as Buffalo, used, you, you know, live. So if people were more aware of that and, you know, same with me, I've changed my buying habits on where I buy my local meat and things such as that. Even um, as I travel, I, you know, you just look at the shelves a lot different when you start walking through some of these places. And I've been in both, uh, same as you, Danny, is I've been in both of those and um, it does, you know, it, it awakens you and, and shows you how important these local food systems really are. Makes your life a little bit harder too, right? But <laughs> it's definitely worth it. You know, Don, you, you were talking um, before the call about, you know, honoring the animal in different ways. And, and you know, we talked about the ancestor part. I, I, I'm sure our, our viewers and listeners would like to hear a little bit about how you harvest the animals and how you continue honoring their legacy in their lives. Right, right. So um, because they're a sacred animal um, to us, they, they provided us with everything to sustain our life. So they were life givers. Um, you know, our, we, we do have one of the uh, number one uh, bison producers in the nation as far, is our partner as well, you know, as well as an equity holder of the company now with, with this new change of partners with Alvin Lyman and everybody else come on board. So um, they're using the uh, they're, most of the bison are given choice, which means that they can either be on grass or they can come in and eat. So the majority are bison and then a lot of our native producers actually just leave them out on grass until harvest time. And then they're taken to our, our harvesting plant. But everything is always done, you know, respectful, similar to um, Nyman Ranch's model as far as humane. Bison are just own species to this uh, nation, so they're a little different. As far as the treatment, you know, they're not allowed to have antibiotics or hormones or anything like that because they're still considered a wild animal. So, you know, some of those rules are a little bit different for bison as they are for um, other animals. So that's the nice thing. And plus, the other thing about them is because they're keystone, it's it's key to bring them. The more people eat them, the more we can bring them back. Um, you know, they help with the Great Plains. They help with the carbon sequestration. Right. The way they eat and they forage as far as that goes it's uh, really important to keep and we've seen a surge during this last time of buffalo eaters these last uh six months with covid that's exciting that's exciting um you know paul we we talked a little bit and and i'm interested to hear from both you and and michael in different ways about you know, the, the next generation. So the next generation of farmers, I know uh, Nyman has set up a, a next generation foundation to support um, not only farmers, but food educators, food and agriculture educators and, and communicators. How, you know, how, how important is that to the company to keep that going? Well, I think it's important to Nyman Ranch because it, uh, 
it, it supports our farmers, which are the, the core of what Nyman Ranch is all about. And uh, one, one thing I wanted to say that a lot of our farmers are small farmers. We have a lot of Amish farmers and so on. And what Nyman Ranch provides is access to market. And all of these other support mechanisms like uh, the, the foundation, scholarships for our kids, the kids of our farmers that are going on for further education, all of these things uh, uh, just help uh, help these families and help people, uh, you know, sort of reestablish themselves in agriculture. They provide an opportunity. And I think it's important to note that our our average farmer, I, I believe the average age is at like 47 years old. That's a Nyman Ranch farmer rancher. Farmers in general are all uh, are almost 60 years old today. Right. So it shows that we've, we've, we've sort of have uh, maybe a proof that there's opportunities for young people to get into agriculture. And that's kind of a rare thing these days. It's, it's hard to get going. And this, this is a, this is an opportunity that's open to the people and they find it attractive. So all these things are important for the future generations. And Absolutely. All of us. So Michael, I mean, you and, and, and others like you, like Marion Nestle really started this, you know, this uh, trend of writing about food in a really accessible way that, you know, a lot of folks could understand who weren't necessarily involved in agriculture. But as, you know, newspapers shut down and, and journalism, you know, in general is, is, is declining, how do we support that next generation of, you know, uh, muckrakers, you know, folks like Tom Philpott and others who can really expose what's happening in the food and agriculture world and also inspire and, can, you know, give people, uh, you know, a, an alternative sense of what is happening, whether it's Nyman, Nyman Ranch or Tonka Bar. Well, you're right. I mean, journalism is really in crisis and there have been some interesting responses to deal with it. You have these nonprofit uh, journalism uh, institutions popping up because a lot of philanthropists and foundations realize that uh, the press is very important to uh, holding power accountable, whether it's corporate or political. And so in the food area, you have organizations like FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network, that has been supporting some really good, great coverage of the meat plant crisis last Absolutely. spring, for example. Um, and that's on, you know, they get grants uh, to do that work. And they have uh, nourished a new generation of, of uh, food writers. Um, mm -hmm. At Berkeley, we started uh, a, a fellowship, uh, and every year we support 10 young journalists who want to write about food and agriculture. Uh, it has become a beat at many uh, newspapers and magazines. I mean, Tom Philpott, you know, is, a, is an example. This is someone who was a blogger who now has a column in Mother Jones magazine. Uh, as well as his books. I mean, right. uh, you know, there's, there, is a, there is a generation of writers who write about food in a new way, in a way that didn't exist 20 years ago. Uh, food writing then was recipes, right? In the Wednesday, right. you know, supermarket supplements of newspapers. And now you have people who look at food and agriculture as one thing. Um, you know, as a writer, when I first started out, I would go to editors in New York and say, um, I want to write about agriculture. 
and they would like, no one's interested in agriculture. And then I just slightly changed my pitch and I said, I want to write about food and where it comes <laughs> from. And they were all ears because they didn't really understand that food and agriculture are the same story. Right. And that's, right. How, that's how out of touch we have become. Um, and that's how much we take food for granted, uh, that we have no idea where it comes from. So now there is a, there is a market, an information market for people who do want to know where their food comes from, for people who want to feel good about their choices and realize yeah. that they have a vote and they can buy a Slim Jim or a Tonka bar and support a very different system. Um, and the more they know about those options and journalists help with that, uh, the more they tend to make very good decisions. People want to feel good about the kind of farmers, ranchers uh, that they're supporting, and they, but they need information to do it. And journalism yeah. is a very important part of, of uh, getting people that information. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think people want to feel good about they, what they eat, but only if they can afford it and have access to it. And I think one thing that I'm concerned about when I look at food journalism is inclusivity and whether, you know, the, the, the racial inequality that we've seen, you know, you know, throughout the, the history of the U.S., if we can make sure that, you know, we're making food and agriculture writing inclusive and including, you know, the BIPOC, the Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color community in this revolution of how we, we write and think about food, because those stories are very different in terms of access and affordability. I totally agree. And one of the, the most encouraging developments in the food movement and the food journalism uh, sector is um, much more attention to issues of, of, of race, of gender, labor in general. Um, when I started, when I published Omnivore's Dilemma, nobody really talked very much about labor in food. Right. And I didn't either. And I think, you know, you asked me at the very beginning of how would I do things differently? I would pay a lot more attention to labor. Um, and, uh, and I, I think that was just an oversight. Um, sure. and, uh, but it's changed now. And now you do have, um, some really important labor movements within food, like the coalition of Immokalee workers, for example. Um, and you have much more attention to inclusivity. And I think that's a very healthy development. Absolutely. We have a ton of questions. I need to turn to them from the audience right now. So, uh, Michael, I have to put you on the spot again. Um, Nathan writes, I'm wondering what Mr. Pollan thinks about how much food choices are talked about by environmental groups and why they aren't talked about more. I have been around environmentalists who turned up their nose at a plant-based meal and I was um, flabbergasted. Yeah. So there seems to be some reluctance on the part of the environmental movement to deal with food uh, and specifically the the choices around meat eating and climate change um, we know that beef eating in particular is uh, has a very heavy carbon footprint um, and um, I think I don't know this for a fact but I think a lot of environmental groups have made a have made a judgment that this is a political loser that if you start uh, encouraging people to change their dietary habits, people feel very strongly, it's very personal. I remember uh, years ago having lunch with the president of uh, Sierra Club, mm. and he had been offered a tremendous donation by a uh, philanthropist to do a big campaign to reduce meat eating. 
really put the Sierra Club uh, on the map as a, as anti meat eating. Um, and he and he chose not to take it um, mm. because he felt that that would hurt the organization in the long run. So that's a political calculation, I think, that environmentalists are making. Um, I think that you know promoting plant-based diets is it makes a lot of environmental sense in the same way you know we promoted recycling and promoted not littering and there's certain aspects of personal behavior. Um, I also don't think you have to be absolutist about it. I think eating less meat but meat of higher quality is also a very good choice. But then it gets complicated. You're asking people to make distinctions about, you know, that eating, you know, Nyman pork is not the same as eating, you know, industrial pork and ditto feedlot meat with, uh, you know, pastured meat. I mean, and maybe some people don't want to make these distinctions or think it's impossible, but I, I disagree. I mean, I think it should be a central conversation in the environmental movement. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more either. Um, so Ian writes, according to the USDA, 35% of people below the poverty line are food insecure. Reducing efficiency in the food supply will result in higher costs, he says. How do we create a more resilient food system without making it on a, uh, without making food unaffordable? So th this is for you all. I don't know, Paul, if you want to weigh in on that. Well, I think there are a lot of food choices. Uh, there are chips, there's soda, there's uh, things that you buy in, uh, in uh, convenience stores. I, there are people that eat, eat most of their food coming from these kinds of places. And those things are honestly expensive. Real food is, in my opinion, cheaper in the long run. It's, it's uh, you know, would you rather pay more medical bills or would you rather uh, eat better food? Great answer. Don, any thoughts? We talked about how Native communities have been disproportionately affected by, you know, colonial food sort of imposed on them. I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Uh, yeah, I, I don't necessarily, uh, it is a give and a take because, you know, some people are like, uh, when, when you are in areas with uh, poverty, you know, you have everything that comes with it. And uh, by a lot living on, you know, living on uh, food stamps or, you know, assistance and WIC is, and things such as that. But there's also thinking about how many miles your food has to travel to get to those places. So, you know, whether you're buying the cheaper stuff or the good stuff for you, it, the price is still higher that we're seeing in some of these rural areas. So trying mm -hmm. to get rid of some of that rural decay and these local food systems will help having the local food hubs, keeping your, uh, you know, your food traveling less than, you know, 400 miles from where you're living. Um, so then that way it's not going 2000 miles by the time it gets to you. Um, it's a lot healthier for you. So you do give up a little bit of, fish, uh, of efficiencies, but... If, you know, if we went to a more that micro system that, you know, Mike was, Mike was talking about, it actually does not become more expensive because you're not paying for that transportation. You're not paying for that type to get the food on the shelves. Absolutely. So there have been a couple. I just add that, you know, we don't have a free market in food in this country. Um, it is what is cheap and what is expensive is heavily influenced by government policy. 
we happen to have a system that subsidizes the least healthy calories in the supermarket. There's a reason those chips are so cheap. There's a reason okay. that soda is so cheap. It's because we subsidize the corn that goes into it. And um, we could have a system that subsidized healthier food and we could level the playing field that way. So, I mean, I, I think we have to understand this all takes place in the context of, of political choices that are being made in your name that you're not being consulted on. Absolutely, absolutely. Such a great point. So there have been a couple of questions from different um, listeners about technology. And, and one was about the use of apps to find local food. And the other is, you know, uh, please ask the panelists about software that, you know, virtual farmers markets are using so, since there are so many great advantages to them. Uh, you know, and, and keeping uh, farmers on the farm rather than taking time to market. And, and we've seen so much of that grow during COVID-19. But I, I wonder what you all think about this, you know, sort of shift to, you know, um, you know, it's it's gone beyond CSAs delivering right to your door, but a lot of, you know, shipping of, of these products uh, straight to consumers. Anyone feel free to weigh in. <laughs> Mr. Willis, go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, there's, prob there's probably no end to the the new tools that can be used to uh, get access to food or to find food. I don't honestly know what, what they all are, you know, but uh, uh, lots of people uh, uh, through this COVID uh, situation have uh, – you know, ordered or picked up curbside pickup, various kinds of things. I don't. I I'm not the one to ask about the technology, uh, I, about how all of that works. But there are a lot of tools out there. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And the you know this is that next generation, right? The millennials and the younger that having that access. So it gives them more information. So not only are they walking to the shelves like we're used to and turning that turning around and trying to read what's on it, they are actually saying, all right, what am I buying? And then even going further, what is sure. the story behind it? Who's making it? Where is it coming from? So um, I see that that technology even lifting and COVID really made it, gave us a fast jump into that because not everybody had the curve, you know, the curb and the door-to-door -door ordering and you know, everything that we've had. We've seen a really uptick in the technology. And that's just, um, I, I think it's a great thing because it informs everybody so they understand where that's where it's coming from. And I, I think you'll see it even a more uptick in that um, as far as that goes. And, you know, in, in ours, you know, we, we, I can order from all local indigenous people that I have in the country and have it brought right to my door. Very cool. I, I think it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of, you know, opportunities uh, and new businesses and innovation coming, you know, that are, that are arising. But I also think that there's a, you know, another class of so-called essential workers that's, you know, having living under pretty abusive conditions. Right. I mean, the Instacart workers are, are heavily monitored and exploited. And I don't know if you've had the experience of being in a supermarket where there are a lot of Instacart people shopping, but man, they'll raise your blood pressure. I mean, they are just so freaked out as they race through the aisles. It's just a whole new um, <laughs> a whole new reality. And the reason is that they can be fired for not producing, you know, a certain amount of 
of, of groceries and, and, and they have to shop at lightning speed, you yeah. know, running over children in their carts. And um, so I think we have to, it's not just technology. Behind technology, there are still people. Right. And, and those people are not always being treated properly. And um, so Absolutely. I think we have to pay attention to that as well. Absolutely. Such a great point. So um, this might be the last question. We're running out of time. So Seed to Saver Farm says we're in Colorado where we have gone from 100 degrees yesterday to snow today with eight inches in the forecast. All of our local producers spent yesterday harvesting immature crops. We are a seed preservation farm attempting to adapt food crops to our challenging environment. But an early September snowstorm does not allow time for seeds to mature, to mature. How do you recommend small farms, whether they're livestock or you know produce farms, to adapt to such extremes in weather and climate? That's such You're a hard all, one. I yeah. mean, that's exactly what we're talking about though. I think the more diversified you are, um, the more likely you are to withstand these, this, these what we used to call freak weather events, but I, I think that word freak is going to vanish from our vocabulary. Um, right. You know, it got to 120 in California. I mean, that, you know, I'm sure that had a, a devastating effect on, on some of our crops and not others. And, I and think, farm workers. And not to mention the people who still had to go out and pick crops under those circumstances. Um, so I think that once again, the watchword of diversity, I mean, that is, that is how you create a farm that is, uh, can withstand those kind of shocks. Yeah. Amazing. And, and ours is for us, it's more on the, on the bison side, a uh, bison, since, like I said, they're keystone species uh, can adapt to these extremes. So, um, you know, they face the storm when they walk out of the storm. You know, I, I use that analogy quite a bit because that's who we are as Tonka is we face the storm and they know that facing the storm and walking through it that eventually you come out of it. Um, but bison are really resilient. Um, obviously, you know, they still need water and things. But for example, we had that winter snowstorm back about six years ago and South Dakota lost over half of its cattle and there was only a handful of bison that had had um, we had lost in, in the state of South Dakota during that time. So, you know, that shows the resiliency as far as, you know, when you're having one of those large snowstorms, you know, they, they walk out of the storm towards it versus cattle will go with the wind and kind of go down into gullies yeah. and things such as that. So um, on our side, you know, we, we talk about how resilient bison are because they were, you know, they were made to be on this land. Absolutely. Paul, what are your thoughts? Um, I, I'm so busy listening to everybody that I've. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Just this idea of how to to make small farms more more resilient to climate change. I mean, I, you know, I think yeah. the facing the storm analogy is is the best one in, in terms of, and you know, Michael mentioned diversity, of course. Well, I. I, I like to think of the the native prairie, the tall grass prairie, which I've got some um, restored and reconstructed here, as an example of that. And it, and it and it's the the picture of biodiversity. There's uh, almost 300. You can probably find two to 300 species of plants and animals that live in this ecosystem, and they they interact with each other, and some thrive in some situations, and you know drought, wet, whatever it is. But it, 
in, in my mind, it's kind of a model of what we should think about as in farming too, to, to use that as a, as a, uh, something to look to, to uh, teach us a little bit more about biodiversity. Great point to end on. I want to thank all of our panelists. I hope folks will uh, check out michaelpollen.com for links to his books and articles, nymanranch.com, as well as tonkabar.com. And please remember to sign up for other panels and speakers, including Nyman Ranch farmers, talking about the challenges uh, they face and what eaters can do to support them on September 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And that same night, please tune in to the amazing Dr. Temple Grandin, give her keynote address. You can go to Nyman Ranch HFAD, again, that's hfad.com for more information. Thanks to you all again. Thanks to those of you who, who listened and, and joined us uh, via the live stream. This has been an incredible discussion and, and I want to thank you all again. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, John and, and uh, Paul. Well, thank Great you, Michael. See you. Thank you, Paul. Bye. Thank you, Danny. This is Rob Perra, Food Talks executive producer. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.